Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the chapel for the destitute. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that he condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. Old Matthew The short and simple records of the poor will ever have their interest. For amongst the sons and daughters of daily toil, myriad of whom are doomed to pass their lives in obscurity, many may be found patiently enduring their lot with submission, fortitude, and even cheerfulness, counting their mercies and measuring their blessings, not by endless wants, but by what they need making the things of the world without subordinate to the grander world within, and confirming the testimony of one of their order who found it possible to be troubled, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, cast down, yet not destroyed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. This language to the world without is a foolish paradox, yet it is a glorious truth. An old Matthew Shepherd adds one more to the millions of witnesses. Those who have read My New Friends in the first volume of Strange Tales, may possibly remember that amongst the remarkable characters composing our first congregation at the chapel for the destitute, there was one man that knelt down and offered up a singular prayer, beginning with, O Lord, I thank Thee on my bended knees for what Thou hast done for a lot of the worst men and women in Rochdale. Who could have thought of seeing us on our knees praying? We cannot laugh at one another, for we have all been bad enough, and we are all poor as Lazarus. But if we are poor in pocket, we are getting rich in faith, and that's better than all the brass in the world. I saw some rich folks in the market buying fat geese and legs of mutton, but I had to be content with a penny red herring. I thought there's a difference, but I do not envy them, for I dare say they have their troubles of some sort. Brass does not give as much comfort as religion, 
Jesus Christ sent the disciples to tell John that the poor had the gospel preached to them, and the gospel gives more comfort than brass, fat geese, and legs of mutton. It is now ten years since old Matthew so astonished me with his petition, and during the whole of those ten years he has gone in and out, and been a great favourite amongst us because of his remarkable eloquence, simplicity, and originality. He was by trade a flannel weaver, a business that in his younger days was regarded as the most honourable and lucrative of all employments, and the weavers were the most proud and self-important of men. Fifty years since, thousands of the inhabitants of Rochdale and surrounding villages carried on the manufacturing operations in their own dwellings. Their houses were large and well-lighted for the purpose. The occupation was easy and healthy. Large families were then great blessings, for all could find suitable and profitable employment under the parents' roof, and in well-regulated homes— the dignity of labour was seen in its beauty, and yielded to the workmen a rich bounty. There were then, as now and ever will be, occasional fluctuations in trade, which brought distress, especially amongst the improvident. But the frugal and prudent lifted their heads amongst the most respectable in society. The flannel weavers in the hamlets and on the banks of the roach were then thought to excel as singers. The occupation was favourable to the development of the lungs, and the solo, duet, and chorus often rose above the rattle of the shuttle or hum of the spindle. But many of the songs then sung would sound strange now. They were not church songs, but generally such as could be sung in the public house on St. Monday or Tuesday. Songs of love, war, sea, storms, shipwrecks, rights of man, tyrants, and three blind mice. On these St. Mondays, fiery orators tried their powers of eloquence, denouncing all oppressors but more especially flannel manufacturers. Higher wages were demanded. Committees and public meetings followed. All the shuttles in the whole country were forcibly taken, and all work for months suspended, to compel the masters to comply with the terms demanded. Distress, riots, and the reading of the Riot Act followed. The soldiers fired on the maddened multitude— some were killed, many imprisoned, and a few transported, and numbers long remembered this battle of the shuttle-gathering of 1829. It was during these times of turnouts and troubles in trade that many of those marvellous inventions that made the machine almost a living thing took place and though the enraged weavers in formidable mobs often broke them to pieces, still the inventions went on, for the masters, anxious to keep their customers and supply their orders, submitting to necessity, began to build huge factories for the new machinery, 
and to the young and the strong they gave employment in these immense workshops. Thus the mingled sound of the rattle of the shuttle, the buzz of the spindle, the solo, the duet, and the chorus died away in the rural homestead, and Matthew, like many others, was left a stranded vessel on a waveless shore. A singular circumstance connected with one of the St. Monday flannel weavers, a neighbour of old Matthew's, may be useful to some of the St. Monday men now. This man had saved a guinea for the express purpose of having a whole week's fuddle. He began on the rush-bearing Monday, spending three shillings per day for seven days. On the morning of the eighth day he was burning with thirst, but his money was done. He went to the back door of the drunkery, where he had spent every farthing of his guinea, to beg a pint on trust. Judy, the landlady, was mopping the passage. He stood looking at Judy with his cracked lips, parched tongue, and bloodshot eyes, expecting her to ask him to just a drop, but she did not. And he requested her to trust him only one pint. With an indignant look of scorn and contempt, she replied, Trust thee, thou dirty, idle vagabond! Set a step in this house, and I will dash this mop in thy face! The poor wretch hung down his head in shame. He was leaning against a pump, and after a little study began to talk to the pump. "'Well, pump,' he said, "'I have not spent a guinea with thee, pump. "'Wilt thou trust me a drop?' "'He lifted up the handle, "'put his burning mouth to the spout, "'and drank to his fill. "'This done, he again said to the pump, "'Thank thee, pump, and now hear me, pump.' I will not enter a public house again for the next seven years, so help me God. And, Pump, thou art a witness. The bargain was kept, and this man afterwards became a respectable manufacturer, and often said it was a grand thing for him that Judy threatened to dash the mop in his face. My first acquaintance with old Matthew began one Sunday morning. I was seeking all the roughs I could find, and inviting all the street loungers, or any that attended no place of worship, to our evening service at the destitute. Five or six men that stood at the corner of St. Mary's Gate seemed disposed to have a tilt with me. One of them who had on a poor drab cotton jacket, speaking in a civil and respectful manner, said, Mr. Ashworth, look at this jacket, and look at my whole garments. Would you go into any church or chapel dressed as I am now, would you? I know that a man with self-respect must keenly feel being poorly dressed, 
especially on the Sabbath. And no doubt this keeps many from the church, I replied. But perhaps in your case the fault may be your own. Are you a sober man? Yes, I am a sober man, and have only sixteen shillings per week wages, and there are six to keep out of it, for I am the only one that earns a penny in our house. Well, my man, your case is bad enough, but there is one comfort for the poor. God does not judge us by the shape of our coat or quality of our cloth. Our Saviour was poor, and he lived amongst and preached the gospel to the poor, and the common people heard him gladly. A voice behind me said, Bless him, bless him, he was poorer than any of us, and he was poor for us, and he just suits poor folks, bless him. I turned round to look at the speaker, and saw a thin-faced, white-haired old man. It was old Matthew, and that evening the poor man with the drab jacket and old Matthew made two more to our congregation. This Sunday morning's conversation had struck a chord in old Matthew's soul a chord now more feeble than in former years, but not entirely unstrung. In his earlier years he had been amongst the primitive Methodists. He joined them during the time of that great revival, when Hugh Bourne and Clowes, whose zeal for dying souls could not be bound by chapel walls or printed rules, raised their standard on Malkop Hill, and with trumpet voices sang to burning words those spirit-stirring songs which melted stout and flinty hearts, those songs and fervent prayers and earnest gospel words went down to the deep depths of moral darkness, and from those depths the cry for mercy came from many a breaking heart. Those hedge and highway heralds knew no unconsecrated ground. He who was their theme said, Go. They heard his voice and went. The fields almost forsaken they reoccupied, and from those fields have gathered no mean harvest. And as souls were saved and men were born again, they did what Christ bid him to do who came out of the tombs. They told their friends what great things God had done for them, and hence arose a band of men whose hearts God had touched. These men never thought that the study of segments and circles, lines and angles, was any preparation for preaching the gospel. They cared little for metaphysics or mathematics. Their college was the prayer meeting, and their only work on theology the Bible. Their logic, he that believeth shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Their great and grand and all-engrossing theme was 
Calvary, Christ crucified for sinners. This fired their souls, and every man was ready to stand side by side with the prophet in the wilderness and cry, Behold the Lamb of God! If these gatherings were sometimes noisy, it arose from the constitutional temperament of their converts. Men who had once been loud in the service of Satan would now be loud in the service of God. If their hearts were changed, their lungs were not. Their trumpet voices, especially on the morning of their camp meetings, have disturbed many an ungodly sluggard in his bed, and set his guilty conscience to work, have brought the tear of contrition from the eye of many a street lounger, and many an unwashed sinner. These primitives have their own mission, have done and are doing a mighty work, for if they are the best fishermen who catch the most fish, these worthy men will take no mean station beside the fishermen of Galilee. Matthew heard them preach, believed the gospel, and joined these ardent souls. He learned their favorite nervous songs, and ever retained a love for what he called the Blue Sky Chapel, meaning open-air services. For a long time he was a member amongst them, but for several years previous to the morning that I met with him, from some cause he had not been regular in his attendance, but he was always a peaceable, sober man. He was never drunk but once, and then it was from a neighboring gentleman giving him one half-pint of twenty years old beer. This had such an effect on him that, on entering the house, he tumbled over the cradle, and as he lay sprawling on his back in the corner, he shouted to his astonished wife, I have only had one gill! I have only had one gill! It is not my fault! I have only had one gill! That drink brings untold misery none can deny. But Matthew was not the victim of this parent of all crime. Whether from want of business enterprise, or neglecting opportunities, which all have more or less, I know not. But Matthew had one long protracted and exhausting trial, a trial from which the people of God are not entirely exempt, but which religion always modifies and makes tolerable to be borne. This trial was poverty. We know that poverty often comes from extravagance, ignorance, want of forethought, or bad management. But not always. Sickness, low wages, with families of young children, scarcity of work, or feeble limbs from old age often bring poverty. Again, poverty is relative. One man would think himself very poor with what another would think great riches. It is wonderful how nearly balanced are the things of this life which give to life its joys or sorrows. And Matthew's native eloquence would sometimes show this with great force. Amongst our other meetings at the chapel for the destitute, 
There is one to talk about religion called an experience meeting. Matthew loved this communion of saints. One evening he said, My friends, I was happy this morning. My old limbs are getting clumsy and stiff, but a short walk loosens my joints a bit. So I took a walk up Falling Road. Sun were shining, and in those big trees that nearly meet over the road, scores of birds were singing and chirping with all their might. I sat down under the trees to hearken them. How they did sing, to be sure. I thought, well, some of those birds are sparrows. How happy they are. Our Saviour talked about sparrows. He told us our Father in heaven noticed and fed them every one. Ah, I thought, that is grand for sure. And I thought, well, God thinks better a one of his children than many sparrows. And I am one of his children. And in his sight worth all the sparrows in the trees o'er my head, and more too. And if he feeds them, he'll feed me, that's certain. These thoughts filled my soul with such a flood of love that I cried for joy. I thought, if sparrows chirp and birds sing, I ought to sing a vast deal louder, so I sang and cried for gladness. This is part of what I sang. No foot of land do I possess, No cottage in this wilderness, A poor wayfaring man. A while I sojourn here below, And gladly wander to and fro, Till I my Canaan gain. Ah, thought I, my Canaan is not far off. Methodists used to sing that hymn more than they do now. Many of them are getting rich. They have both land and cottages, and so they cannot sing it now, but I can. Well, well, I envy nobody in the world. I have had a bit of supper before I came. I roasted a red herring before the fire, and fried a few cold potatoes in a bit of old butter, and it were very tasty and good. I think it is better to be a little bit short and like it than have the house full and no stomach for it. They say some rich folk ride out in their carriages to get appetite, but I never have to seek for that. Mine is sharp enough, and I think if they would miss a meal or two, it would sharpen theirs. But one thing I am sure of, we cannot be poor if we have Christ, and we cannot be rich without him. Bless him, bless him. Old Matthew's words were singularly confirmed a few hours later by another poor Christian I was requested to call and see. The moment I saw the placid countenance of this grey-haired old pilgrim, I knew him, and was astonished he was still alive. 
He sat by the fire in the humble but clean cottage in which he was a lodger. Placing my hat on the table and a chair beside him, I laid my hand on his knee, saying, My dear old friend, I am pleased to see you. How are you, Mr. Stott? Rearing up in his armchair and looking me in the face, he replied, My name, sir, is not Mr. Stott. It is John Stott. Will you please tell me your name? Laughing at his frankness, I informed him who I was. He rose from his chair, put his hand on my shoulder, and with a tremulous voice implored heaven's blessing to rest upon me. And then, resuming his seat, he several times exclaimed, Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! How old are you now, Mr. Stott? I asked. Well, sir, in a few days I shall be ninety years of age, he replied. And how long have you been a member of the church? Well, sir, I was converted at twenty, so I have been joined to the church of my Saviour seventy years, and never reproved or turned out, thank God. I am pleased to think that you are well provided for in your old age. You seem comfortable, I observed. Yes, sir, the Lord does provide. What I have would be thought very little by some folk, but I make it do very well. I like plain meat. It suits me best and costs little. I have only five shillings a week, but I many a time think that I am the happiest old fellow out of heaven. Ah, I am happy for sure, and the love of Jesus will make folk happy, and I am fair surprised that everybody does not love him. And how long is it since your wife died? Well, sir, it is twenty years since she went to heaven, and I sometimes think that I am so long after her that she will think I have missed the road. But I have not. No, no, I have not. On parting with old John Stott, his simple, earnest prayer in my behalf affected me much. What a testimony! Only five shillings per week, living in lodging, ninety years of age, and in his own opinion, the happiest old felly out of heaven. Never yet were Satan's servants, old or young, able to say this. Sin has no such trophy. Having nothing, and yet possessing all things, for all things are ours if we are Christ's. And old John and old Matthew, while knowing something of poverty, possessed the true riches. But there are greater troubles in this world than poverty, trials more severe, and anguish of heart more bitter has been the lot of many parents through the conduct of undutiful rebellious children bringing a sadness of soul, a sorrow of spirit, far more distressing than mere struggles for bread. Matthew had one son, whose conduct greatly embittered the old man's last days. This son was a drunkard, and through drink often got into disgrace. 
The old man could sometimes prevail on this child of his sorrows to accompany him to the chapel. Then hope would spring up concerning him. But that hope was again and again dashed to the ground. When Matthew, in his prayers, mentioned this lad, his voice always trembled. Bad children have caused thousands of trembling prayers. Matthew's chief earthly comfort was his chapel for the poor. As long as strength remained, he was found at the various means. Often might he be seen on the Sunday evening, leading old blind John Hamer through the narrow streets. It was a beautiful sight. Two feeble, grey-headed old men, bending under the weight of years, plodding their weary way to the house of prayer. To Matthew it was the house of God, the gate of heaven. But the blind man's guide was the first to fall. His white locks disappeared from our midst, and we all heard with sorrow that he was sick unto death. To stand by the bed of the dying, to look on the sunken eye, the wasted form, and heaving breast, has often been my lot. There great lessons are learned. As I gazed on the closed eyes, moving lips, and changed features of my dear old friend, as he lay in his poor home, on his poor bed, I felt it was a great lesson indeed. Bending over him, I said, Matthew. His whole body moved, his eyes opened, his features changed. He smiled and answered, I know that voice, sure I do. What could I do now, Mr. Ashworth, without Christ? He is very near me, and very, very precious. I have been praying for my children, especially one. You know where he is, poor lad. My prayers for thee are ended, but I hope to meet thee in heaven. I leave my wife and children in my heavenly Father's care, and die very happy. Matthew had his failings, but he is gone where failings will never reach him more. In the world he had great tribulation, in Christ he had peace. Heaven now counts one more, while of the old stock, the chapel for the destitute, counts one less. Yes, Emmet, who could have thought it? Let none despair, seeing that faith in Jesus can snatch from the very verge of hell such a vile transgressor as the oldum infidel Richard Emmet. <laughs>